You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Healthcare costs are on the rise, and taking care of our health is one of the most important moves we can make for our lives and for our finances. Make a plan for managing your healthcare costs with the help of a complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. If you don't invest, inflation will chip away at what you currently have. You can't get to retirement by saving anymore, unfortunately, unless you make a ton of, ton of, ton of money. And in that case, you probably should still be investing. But for the everyday person, if you want to have a chance to kick up your feet, walk along the beach with your boo every single night with your golden retriever, you need to invest because it's really the only way that you can get there right now because your human body can only work so many hours a day, but your money can work 24-7. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. I would like to start this week's episode on a high note. Since starting Her Money in 2016, I am really happy to be able to say that women have made a lot of progress taking control of our finances. We are feeling more confident about how we handle money. We're also investing more. Research from U.S. Bank found the confidence gap between men and women shrank from 13 percent to 5 percent between 2020 and 2022. And a study out from Fidelity shows 67 percent of women, two-thirds of us, are now investing outside of our retirement accounts. That's compared to just 44% in 2018. That is a very big jump. Our own survey here at Her Money of Women last year found 80% say we prefer to take the lead with our family's finances, not to give it up to anybody else. And this is all amazing news. And I hate to put a but in there, but you all knew it was coming because we still have a lot more room to grow. Women still invest less 
often than men do. The gender wage gap and the racial wealth gap have also barely budged in the last two decades. Research from the National Women's Law Center found a 20-year-old woman just starting full-time work today will amass about $400,000 less over a 40-year career compared to a man starting, by the way, in the exact same job. There are a lot of different reasons for those inequalities, but one very big reason is that it's hard to wrap your arms around your finances when you don't see people who look like you in the financial space. Wall Street is still overwhelmingly white and male. So is the financial planning industry. Just 23% of certified financial planners are women. Less than 5% are Black or Latino. These numbers are the reason that I started this podcast, to give the mic to smart, savvy women of all stripes who can help us all rise together in one big burst of financial confidence. I'm excited to be able to introduce you to one of these women today, although I suspect that many of you already know her. Vivian Tu is a former Wall Street trader. She's an entrepreneur, a personal finance educator. Like all of us at Her Money, she's been on a mission to make conversations about money less scary, more accessible to women, to people of color, to other marginalized communities. Communities. If you know her, you probably know her as your rich BFF on social media, where she has taught four and a half million followers and counting how to save, invest, and build their careers. She's also in this year's Forbes 30 Under 30 social media and host of the personal finance podcast, Net Worth and Chill. She is here to talk about all things gender, money, and representation on Wall Street and beyond. Vivian, so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. You started on Wall Street as a trader at J.P. Morgan and left the industry after about two and a half years. That, For the record, that's about the same amount of time that I spent on Wall Street as well before hightailing it out of there. What made you decide to go to Wall Street in the first place and why'd you leave? You know, I'd love to say that I was one of those, you know, genius, forward thinking young people that just knew exactly what they wanted to do. But I am a lemming. I was basically following all of my friends off of that cliff. So I went to the University of Chicago, which is very well known for its economics program. And even if you are not necessarily an econ major, one of the major career paths after graduation is to go into finance. It's a major finance feeder school to the point where all of the banks actually come to campus to recruit specifically from UChicago. So when I looked around and all of my friends were prepping their case studies and practicing their interviews and polishing up their resumes, I thought, you know, I should be doing the same. And I was fortunate enough to get that summer internship, which turned into a full-time offer trading on the equities desk at JP Morgan. How was that? You know, it, it was very competitive. I'll be completely honest with you. I think you go through these multiple, multiple rounds of interviews. You're talking to people who you would totally gel with, people you wouldn't gel with, and you have to make a good impression on everybody. On top of that, it's not just your standard 
interview. There are technical questions that they ask you and expect you to know and be able to have an opinion on. So not only are you practicing things like what's your greatest strength, what's your greatest weakness, but they're asking things like, hey, if interest rate rise, what do you think are going to happen to these sectors? And you have to have an answer. Whether or not it's the right one is truly a subjective point, right? You know, I think there are things that could happen or should happen that they're looking for you to say. But again, no one can know for sure exactly where their market's going to go, but you have to have an opinion and be able to back that up. So again, you have to know the space quite well. And then once you actually get the internship, it's 10 weeks of literally just nose to the grindstone. You're competing against other young people for that seat. They give out significantly more internship offers than there are full-time positions available. So there might be two or three people hired to the desk as interns, but there's only one full-time seat that they can essentially afford, and you have to beat the other two people out. That was the case for me. There were three people hired to my desk, and I was the only one hired. So you got the internship, you took the job. And by the way, can I just tell you, I relate completely. I went to school at Penn where Wharton is based. The recruiters, granted, this was, you know, 35 years ago, but the recruiters came to campus. And I went through the process despite being an English major because that was just what you did. You sort of followed the breadcrumbs. I took a job that I should never have taken. (laughs) Did it for three months for the money because it was so much more than I was being offered in publishing and finally, like, put my tail between my legs and and went back to journalism, which was where I belonged in the first place. But you stuck with it after the internship and you did it for two and a half years. And look, I know enough about you to know that it was pretty toxic. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I am very much of the Chinese immigrant parent camp, right? So like, I'm used to that tough love. I am always, you know, water off a duck's back, like no biggie, like I've got a thick skin, it's fine. And I get to Wall Street and I get to my desk and I will say I was incredibly fortunate. My first manager and my now mentor was the only other woman and the only other Asian person on my team only other person of color, I should say, broadly speaking. And we were inseparable. She was my manager. She's my mentor now. Like she was the person that I would ask for brunch recs, but also the person I'd be like, hey, what's going on? Like, I don't know what's happening on my Bloomberg terminal. Like, you know, teach me. And I sat between her and another man who was, they were my first two managers. I loved him so much. They were incredible teachers taught me everything I needed to know. What you'll find is that everybody has a very different trading style. And some people are more aggressive. Some people prefer to, you know, get half of an order done and then watch and just be a little bit more cautious. But everybody has a style. And as a young person, you're trying to learn from as many people as possible. And for the first year and a half, I had a great experience. Like, sure. Did I get in trouble all the time? Yes. Did I get yelled at (laughs) all the time? Yes. But it was always you did a bad job. I am unhappy with your performance. I am unhappy with how this went. Learn better for next time. It was never personal. It was certainly tough. There were swear words flying. You know, it is a Wall Street trading desk, but I was never treated with disrespect. And that was very clear to me. Like I could tell that people valued me, people valued my education and they wanted me to learn. And then a year and a half in, the head of my desk got let go. And 
a new desk head was brought in. So this is not even like my boss's boss, but like my boss's boss's boss. And he came in and fired a bunch of people. I would say almost a third of the entire desk. And then, you know, another good chunk of folks left because they were unhappy with new management. And this new desk had brought in a bunch of his own colleagues from his previous bank. And the team started to look a little different. And by that, I mean completely different from the team that had hired me. And, you know, one day I was helping out someone with an Excel sheet because typically trading analysts don't need to have too many Excel skills because you're using different programs. Your technical skills need to be in other places. However, the summer before my trading internship, I had actually spent a summer in banking, in commercial banking. So I knew my way around an Excel sheet probably a little better than the average trading analyst. And the head of the desk found this out and was like, huh, like I could see the gears turning in his head. And he pulled me aside to the back room one day and he said, hey, do you want to leave your current seat and come work for my best friend, basically, who's coming in and going to become like my right hand man. And when you're 22 and the head of the desk that just got the job asks you that question, you can't say no. You know, that's that's career suicide if you say no. So I said, of course, would love to. And that was the beginning of the end for me. I got to this new manager and it was like a flip had switched For the first year and a half, again, I told you, I got yelled at all the time. I made a ton of mistakes, but I was consistently thought of as a smart, young junior talent who was going to continue to rise the ranks. And I was seen in a really positive light. And I got to this new manager and suddenly it felt like I was just like a shithead who couldn't do anything right. A lot of the criticism started to become very personal They started to attack things that I couldn't change about myself. You know, comments like, oh, you're so girly or you're too girly for this job. You need to be more serious. And I'm like, what what does that mean? What does that mean? Like a more serious. Is that just because like I have a pink blouse on? Do you think I'm unserious or is it because I don't have a Patagonia vest on? Like, you know, there were comments that were made that you could tell that they were rooted in something else. And I was like, whatever, this guy sucks, but like, I'm going to do my time. I'm going to make this money and it'll be fine. And it just kind of built up over and over time. And I became less and less satisfied with the job because the first year and a half, had you asked me, I would have been like, I have the best job in the world. I make great money. I have a great boss. Like it's hard, but you know, it's a good job. And had you asked me in the back half of that period, I would have been like, I hate my job. My boss sucks. And Frankly, I'm being worked to the bone and someone else is stealing my work and taking credit for it. But the straw that really broke the camel's back is I came to work one day with a long cardigan on. Mind you, this was purchased at Ann Taylor, which, by the way, anything you buy at Ann Taylor, my mom loves Ann Taylor. Like, you, it's work appropriate. Right. It's the definition of, of work appropriate. Of work appropriate. <laughs> and so it's a long cardigan. And I come in and my manager looks at me. And he puts his hand together and he laughs and he bows at me and he says, is that a kimono? And I didn't even know what to say, frankly. I just felt my face get hot. And that was the end for me. I decided that moment. I was like, I got to get out of Dodge. You got out of Dodge in a pretty spectacular way, looking (laughs) looking back on it, right? I mean, you made a... I wouldn't say it was a, a 360 turn, but what 
made you think, all right, I'm going to leave Wall Street and I'm going to go on social media and I'm going to teach regular people about money? You know, it wasn't even so simple. There's a step that I think people forget. I went to my manager and I was like, I hate my job. I'm going to quit today. And she's like, don't do that. Like you as a logical person know that you can't do that. You don't want a gap on your resume. Like, let's find you a new job. I was like, okay, cool. So I start interviewing with some hedge funds. I start interviewing with some other buy side shops. And my mentor at the time, my previous manager, she goes like, hey, I know a woman. She's actually one of my close friends who used to work at Goldman Sachs and she left the finance industry for the media tech space. Would you be interested in having a conversation? And I was like, of course, I'll talk to anybody right now. And so I get on the phone with this woman and we hit it off. She is like, you know, I think you're very smart. I think you're very bright. You're a quick learner. Would love to just like chat a little further. One thing leads to another. She becomes my very first manager at BuzzFeed. And when I got to BuzzFeed, I was scared. I was like, I'm in a completely new industry. This is not what I thought I was going to be doing. I got, I had gotten to a massive fight with my parents about it. They did not want me leaving Wall Street, which I had worked so hard to get into just to, my mom literally was like, are you going to go like write quizzes? And I was like, no, I'm on the business team, but thank you. Even if I was like, wouldn't you want me to be happy? And over the next few years at BuzzFeed, I really make a name for myself. I find my home. I find my people. And not only do I meet so many incredible colleagues, like I make a ton of money. It was a digital media strategy sales job, essentially working with brands to create partnerships, whether that be something as simple as putting an ad on the internet all the way to building a IRL pop-up all the way to launching a joint business venture. I did it all. And I was compensated really, really well multiples of what I was being paid on Wall Street. And for the first time, I was like, I didn't have to do what everybody else said I had to do to make money. And that was a really like defining moment for me to feel like I can be successful at anything I want to be successful at. It doesn't have to be the path that everybody else is going down on. While I'm at BuzzFeed, though, I told you, you know, amazing colleagues. I literally have only good things to say about the people that I met there. But they're all my real friends now. And real friends are annoying. And by that, I mean, they all started to ask me, Vivian, you came from Wall Street. Can you help me rebalance my 401k? Which health insurance plan did you pick? And they're like, oh, like I now essentially have someone who can hold my hand through these processes. And I was happy to do so for, you know, friend one through five. And then when it became friends six through 15, I was like, wait, guys, how come all of you guys have the same question? I'm going to just start putting this content on the Internet. And you guys can watch my videos there. That way I don't have to keep saying the same thing over and over to each person. And that was what launched Your Rich BFF. It wasn't meant for other people. It was literally meant for my coworkers. That's amazing. And it's <laughs> so reminiscent of the Zagat Guide. Do you, do you know the story no. of the Zagat Guide? So the Zagat Guide was Tim and Nina Zagat. They were lawyers toiling away at law firms in Manhattan, and their friends would call them for restaurant recommendations, and they started just keeping a list. And that became the Zagat Guide, which became the Zagat Guides, which went worldwide and then got purchased by... I think it was New York Magazine. Anyway, but very, very similar and really, really interesting. Were you amazed at how it took off? 
Yeah, because I have an experience that I would say very few other creators do. My very first video went viral. And I basically made a video that was like, hey, we're, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. I'm seeing a bunch of BS going around, like throw all your money into Bitcoin or buy Tesla calls with your stimulus check. And I was like, you guys, this is bad advice. Nobody in their right mind who has any understanding of finance would ever tell you to do this. And like, I don't have a get rich quick scheme to share with you. But like, if you want to actually understand finance, I can explain it to you. And that was it. That was the whole video. And I think that video ended up getting like 3 million views and I had 100,000 followers by the end of the week. And I was like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do? When you look at social media and when you look at the world of finance in social media and there are not a lot of women of color specifically, do you think that in any way the world gravitated to you because you were a little different? I mean, I'm perfectly aware that I stuck on the Today Show because I was a 30-year-old woman in a world of 50-year-old men. Yeah, 100%. You know, I think people ask me all the time, like, how do you overcome the challenge of being like a young woman of color in this space? And I'm like, I didn't succeed in spite of being a young Asian woman. I succeeded because of it. And I think... When you close your eyes and you visualize every single person you have ever seen on CNBC, you're imagining a guy in a white button down. He probably is balding a little bit, has a little bit of facial hair and looks a little sweaty. And for the first time, people were looking at me, someone who looked like they could be anybody's best friend from college, someone who looks like the same person you went out with on Friday night and got way too drunk with and then had brunch with Saturday morning and then debriefed about who kissed who. Suddenly that person was talking about money. And suddenly you felt like it wasn't as intimidating as it was when it looked like one of your dad's friends was talking about money. And I think that's part of why the brand has taken off is because for the first time, someone's addressing the fact that When you are a young person in this economy, in this stage in your life, money looks very different than if you were born back in the era of a 10-year bull market and things only went up. I think it's really, really important to acknowledge that like, your experience as a woman, your experience as a young person, your experience as a person of color, your experience as part of the LGBTQ community is going to be very different than if you're an old straight white guy who inherited a small business loan of $10 million from your dad. You've talked a little bit about your parents in this conversation already, and I've heard you describe how they instilled the value of every penny spent. But can you talk a little bit more about your money philosophy and how it was shaped by your family? Yeah, I would say my parents got me through the first half. My parents, they're Chinese immigrants. They're super duper frugal. Like my mom washes Ziploc bags. Like it's reduced, reuse, recycle in my house. But that left me with some really great values as it pertains to budgeting, being really mindful with my spending, always knowing to get cash back, to use coupons, to get a discount, being smart and savvy when I'm making purchases. That said, I don't, we didn't talk a lot about investing or growing our wealth growing up. And I had my own, I hate, you know, this theme, but like rich dad, poor dad. Like I had my own rich dad, poor dad moment when I met my mentor because she was the first Asian woman who I had seen with that kind of money. 
She came into the office every day with a new designer bag, a new pair of designer shoes. And for very shallow reasons at the at the beginning, I was like, I want to be just like her. I, too, want to have a new Chanel bag. I, too, want to wear Gucci stilettos. And I think she really took me under her wing and explained to me things that, like, you wouldn't learn inside the four walls of a classroom. Things like hey, you like need to be contributing as much as you humanly can to your 401k. Or, hey, like if you have additional money, you should consider opening up a Roth IRA. When you go on vacation, here's how to use credit card points so that you're not paying so much money for your hotel or so much money for your flight. And she explained all these things to me. And very few people are lucky enough to have a person like that in their life. Coincidentally, her name is Jean. So, you know she was the one who really like held my hand through it all. And both my parents and Jean really molded my philosophy on money, which is while it's important to budget and save and be smart and savvy, you know, the most important thing Jean ever taught me was that she was like, you can only save and invest as much as you earn and you can always earn more money. And I was like, okay, I guess like that makes sense. And she was like, no, 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 I'm telling you, like, you need to ask for a raise. You need to make more money every single year. Making more money so much easier than cutting out every little thing that like brings you joy in your life. Like it's easier to just ask for more money at the end of the year than cut out every single latte or your Netflix subscription or all of the other things that you enjoy. So for me now, I'm very focused on not only growing my wealth and building that financial foundation, but also still being really mindful about how I spend the money I have. Yeah, I think people forget there are two sides to the equation and that you can control both, right? We think about just chip, 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 chip away at the spending, but really it's an equal balance, or at least it should be an equal balance. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to dig into your personal life in just a sec. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Healthcare costs are on the rise, but we know that taking care of our health is one of the most important moves we can make for our lives and our finances. The good news is that with the right savings and investing strategies, you can get out ahead of unexpected healthcare costs and develop a plan that can work for you and your family no matter what life throws at you. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup to meet with an advisor at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with Vivian too, a.k.a. your rich BFF. So I've heard you mention that when you first moved to New York, you went on a lot of dates with men <laughs> who worked in finance and made six <laughs> figures, but were also in credit card debt. Yeah. There's a, a pretty viral thread going on on Twitter today as we talk about this. A woman named Sophie Vershbo who commented that since she started earning six figures, she's looking at dating in a very different light. How do you look at relationships these days? And how do you think money and earning and wealth play into our relationships sort of writ large, but also your own? Yeah. So I guess like we have to really rewind the tape here. When I was going on these dates, I found that it was really easy to date other people in finance because they would never get upset with me if I said last minute, hey, a client event came up, I have to cancel. They would always understand or they would understand why we would have to go to dinner at 530 because your girl had a 915 bedtime. 
And I think that's the reason why I happened to upon so many other people in finance as well. And it was crazy to me because sometimes I would go on dates with people my age and sometimes I would go on dates with people who were like four or five years older than me and they would be making significantly more and they would be in a worse financial position than I was and they would come from generational money and I'd be like, how is this possible? You have had every leg up in life and you are worse off than I am. And I think it comes down to a lot of people's like relationship and habits as it pertains to money. And I was so lucky to meet my now fiance in a dive bar through my girl roommate at the time. They worked on the same team. Again, another finance guy, just because of like we ran in the same social circles. And he comes from, I would say, a very like middle class, upper middle class family, similar to mine is what I would say. And both of us were working very hard for the money that we had, but we never got any, you know, there was no trust funds for either of us. There were no like inheritances to be able to count on. Like we were going to have to kind of just make it ourselves. And I love that about him because it meant that he and I valued a dollar the same way. We were going 50-50 on a lot of things at the beginning, but then when he started to make more money, we wanted to move into a nicer apartment. And we found an apartment that we loved and I had to sit him down and I was like, hey, like, I'm going to be really honest. I'm not comfortable splitting the rent on this place because I can't afford that. That's not going to be good for my finances. And he said, we don't have to split the rent like in down the middle. Like I'll pay more as a proportion of my income. And it just always felt so fair with him. And now I make more money than he does. Again, I try my best to never, ever make him feel weird about that. I think I am so lucky in that he is my number one cheerleader. He's like, yes, go make more money. It's more money for us. Like, I'm like, cool, great. But again, we're, you know, we're a team. And I think I dated a lot of people who wouldn't have made good teammates. Yeah, like they just wouldn't have been a good partner. I mean, I think that's really important advice, not just when it comes to the finances, but when it comes to managing a life together, right? Like to have a spouse who is your biggest cheerleader, and, and I have one of those, is such a gift. And to have somebody who can allow you to become who you are going to become is such a gift. For your community and your listeners and our listeners, how do you find that person if you're still looking? I think when you're dating, you have to really think about what you value most. And there are just like certain little things that I would say are green flags. Like, do they let you have the last tater tot? Do they tell you to text them when you get home if it's dark? Just like little things. Like, it's not like one day I flipped a switch and fell in love with my now fiance. It's like all of these little things added up over time. And it was like one day I woke up and I was like, I just know. I know this is the person. And I think you have to date people and find people who are not your people and you find out what you don't like first. And then you're able to find someone who really is, you know, the perfect puzzle piece. This has been a really difficult year for people financially. When we look at inflation, when we look at market volatility, when we look at rent prices and, and, and mortgage prices. It's been difficult. When we talk about things like 
budgeting, there are answers to those questions, and those answers can be correct. When we talk about things like how do you invest your money, we are asking people to have a little faith, right? There are best practices, but there are no perfect answers. What do you tell people to get them invested? You know, I show them the stats that if you invest in a diversified portfolio that statistically speaking, and don't quote me on this, I don't know the exact stat off the top of my head, but basically over a 40-year period, there's like a 99.9% chance that you will not lose money. Like that seems pretty good odds to me. And, you know, I think it's also to show people that like, hey, if you don't invest, Inflation will chip away at what you currently have. And in the future, when orange juice is $17 a bottle, what you currently have is not going to be enough. You can't get to retirement by saving anymore, unfortunately, unless you make a ton of, ton of, ton of money. And in that case, you probably should still be investing. But for the everyday person, if you want to have a chance to kick up your feet Walk along the beach with your boo every single night with your golden retriever and drive your golf cart around the retirement home. Like, you need to invest because it's really the only way that you can get there right now because your human body can only work so many hours a day, but your money can work 24-7. Gotta love it. Vivian, thank you so much for this. It's been great to have you here. Where can we find the most of you? You can find me as Your Rich BFF across social media. And very excitingly enough, I launched the pre-orders of my upcoming debut book, Rich AF, a winning money mindset that will help change your life. And basically, it's a blueprint guidebook roadmap for anyone who feels like the financial system has historically left them behind. We're going to talk about how to be good with your money in real life and how to navigate financial woes in reality as it comes to your family, your friends, your loved ones, not just black and white in theory. Amazing. We'll pre-order our copy today. Thank you for being here. And we'll be back in just a minute with your mailbag. Was a pleasure. Amazing. Thank you. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it. Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our mailbag and my daughter Julia Chatsky is joining me. So Julia, we spent a weekend together for Mother's Day, and I, I know on several different occasions, we were driving to the beach. I heard sound coming from your phone, and I said, what are you watching? And you said, TikTok. <laughs> Do you watch personal finance videos on TikTok? I mean, they come up from time to time. I'm a swiper. 
not my mojo, but a lot of people do. I think the cool thing about TikTok is there really is a niche for everything. Like you can have cleaning TikTok, you can have personal finance TikTok, home cooking TikTok, DIY TikTok, recycling TikTok, you name it, it exists. And I think it's really cool that the app has sort of become a search engine within itself and that when people want to learn, especially Gen Z millennials, they're using it as a vessel. It's sort of our modern age YouTube, if you will, so they can learn. And once the algorithm figures out like, oh, I want to listen to more of this, it's constantly pumping people like Vivian. So that way they continue to learn more. So sound bites and short digestible knowledge is, is really helpful. And people can access people who they wouldn't be able to normally and learn from them. So it's a really cool thing. What does your feed serve up to you most? Is it food? Is it pets? Is it babies? Um, There's a lot of farm animals right now. I'm really into baby deer right now. There's a lot of baby deer on mine. There's a lot of University of Miami college graduates. That's a big one. I'm excited for Rush TikTok in the early fall. And it's getting into like summer getaways right now. Like I'm seeing lobster rolls and sunsets and like those types of things. So depends on my mood. I know how to search, play around, see what else is up. Inspirational TikTok. Yeah, if you will. Let's take some questions. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Carrie. She writes, I would love your advice on how to reach out to potential clients when your sale drive is zero. I work for a small payroll company and I get 50% of the revenue of any clients I bring in. This would be the easiest and fastest way to increase my income, but I just don't know how to get there. It feels so awkward and sleazy to ask people if they're happy with their payroll company. I love supporting small businesses and getting to do payroll for my mechanic and my favorite coffee shop. And there are a few other small businesses I love that I would like to add on as my clients. But how? Would it be weird to send them a card about how much I like their business and a bit about our company if they're ever looking to switch? I know we are better and cheaper than the big names out there, but it feels weird and disingenuous to brag about our business when you're trying to add someone as a client, even if it's true. Should I try and join some kind of networking group for small businesses? I'm frustrated because I feel like I'm holding myself back from increasing my income, but sales is so outside my personality that I lose confidence in trying. Thank you in advance for any ideas or advice. Carrie, I would stop thinking about it as sales. I get what you're saying, right? I run a small business, Hermione, and I am often approached by companies and individuals that would like my payroll business. I got to tell you, none of them are telling me how much they love getting to do payroll for their mechanic. None of them are telling me how much they love getting to do payroll for their local coffee shop. If they told me that, I would actually listen to them. Like, I would like to have that conversation because you're not selling anything to your mechanic or your coffee shop. You are providing your mechanic and your coffee shop with what sounds to me like really great personalized service. And if I worked for that mechanic or that coffee shop and I had an issue with payroll, it would be great that I knew I can pick up the phone and call Carrie, not I can pick up the phone and dial an 800 number and get somebody who's probably 
not even in my local area, who has absolutely no idea who I am or what my business does or cares about the fact that if my employees don't get their paycheck on this particular day at this particular time, if there's some sort of a hitch, people's lives are going to suffer. Like you care about those things. And so you're not selling. You are helping. And I would think about it like that. So yes, send them a card, but do more than send them a card. Walk into their office, introduce yourself, and by all means, do two other things. Yes, join that networking group because that networking group, whether it's the Chamber of Commerce or something else, is going to be full of these other businesses that would love to have a local individual, somebody they know at their payroll company. For sure, do that. But then talk to that mechanic and talk to that coffee shop owner and ask them to recommend you to their friends. Because if you're doing as good a job for them as I think you're doing, as I suspect you're doing, your business is going to totally sell itself. And the fact that you're better and cheaper than the other bigger companies, that's just a bonus. But it's not the main thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do a little bit of sales. You do business pitching. Mm -hmm. In your company, you work on small business pitches. I work on proposals as well. It doesn't feel like selling to me if I know that what we're offering is good. Right. And I also think, you know, in, in Carrie's instance, in my instance, while, yes, you're selling product, you're selling yourself, right? You are saying, let me be an extension of your team. Let me make this workflow more efficient. So I think if, and I would expect that her approach and her pitch is as genuine as her note to us, it would be a no-brainer for these potential clients. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've got one more. All righty. Our next question comes from Donna. She writes, Hello, I recently inherited some money and I'm wondering if it's better to use a portion to improve my current house that's not in such great shape to make it more sellable or to save it for the purchase of my next house. I'm a lower income single parent. My plan has always been to downsize once I am an empty nester, which is in two years. I would like to get a smaller house with fewer bedrooms that's higher quality and better for growing old in. Here's an example of my dilemma. I could tear up the old rug in my family room that has several stains and replace it with something else, wood or laminate, so the house is more attractive on the market. But then that is money I don't have towards a new house or projects for the new house. I would appreciate your thoughts. Donna, I think you should take advantage of this housing market that we are still in where there is very, very little inventory. I know it's regional and I don't know where you live because you didn't tell me, but I would put your house on the market or at the very least talk to a couple of realtors and ask what they think you could sell your house for at this point. And if their advice is that you don't have to do the repairs in order to sell, I would just go ahead and, and do it in that way. The only reason I would do the repairs is if they tell you that you are going to get more than you put in, in terms of a new floor or whatever, out when you sell the house. But of course, there is no guarantee of that. And 
And I've bought and sold enough houses in my life that I also know that the wood or laminate that you choose to put into this floor might not be the taste of the next person. And so they're not going to want to pay for it because they're going to want to change it anyway. So I would try really hard not to do this, but go ahead and talk to some realtors, see what it looks like in terms of selling the house now. And the only other hitch is your time horizon. In two years, you say you'd like to get a smaller house with fewer bedrooms. You may want to take advantage of where the market is right now, selling at a higher price, maybe renting something for a couple of years to tide you over and then buying perhaps when interest rates are are lower again and the market has come back into some sense of normalcy. Just my two cents, but I wouldn't rush to fix anything up other than perhaps buying a can of paint. Seems reasonable. I think emphasis on the fact that you said speak to multiple realtors, right? Like, don't well, speak because, to one. Get a few opinions. Yeah, because as you know, when we sold our house in Westchester, there were realtors who said, oh, my gosh, you got to fix everything. And there were realtors who said, eh, maybe you should fix one or two things. We went with the one or two things, had absolutely no trouble selling our house. Granted, that's a focus group of one, but I do think that the market is very, very similar to that right now. But good luck, Donna. Let us know what happens. And Jules, thanks for being here as always. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a quick break. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And we are back with your money tip of the week. If you're thinking about merging finances with your partner, before you do, you want to make sure you're on the same page about your spending styles, your current debts, and your big financial goals. If that sounds like a scary conversation to have, there's an easy way to start. Ask your partner for their money story. Ask what money was like for them growing up. That question can reveal a lot about their money habits and where they came from. It's also a great way to encourage openness as you continue to dive into the specifics of both of your finances. For more ideas on money topics to talk through with your partner, visit hermoney.com. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Vivian too for showing us how we can make personal finance accessible and fun. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios and Chelsea Zoo. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.